Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your church and for bringing us together today. And thank you for the preaching of your word. Uh, please use your spirit and allow your people to benefit and for your glory to be seen for, for all to see. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing is for sure about faith, and that is understanding faith won't make anyone a Christian. Simply understanding faith won't save anyone. It won't make anyone a Christian. Another thing is also true. Understanding faith won't solve all your problems. But on the other hand, if you don't understand what faith is in the Christian context, in Christianity... You can't become a Christian. You, you can't understand the work of Jesus and how you'd benefit. Also, if you don't understand faith in the Christian context, I guarantee you, you're going to have all kinds of problems. So all of that to say, we've got to understand what faith is and what faith isn't, even so we can understand the gospel and how it works. But not just that, just so we can read our Bibles better and benefit and understand and not be so plagued by all of the confusion that would come otherwise. And so we've been doing this short series this summer on faith. What is faith in Christianity? And with that, what isn't faith in Christianity? And so this morning we're going to wrap up the series. So we've talked about what it is, we've talked about what it isn't, we've talked about what it produces, we've talked about how faith is not in faith, faith is in Christ, we've talked about how faith uh, is what we, we trust in the Lord, that's what faith is, we trust in God so that we can be saved. We've covered a lot of ground, and so we're going to sort of land the plane this morning, uh, and what we're doing is looking at some common misconceptions common misconceptions regarding faith. This is mainly review, but, but revisiting those things we've already talked about, looking at different passages. And I did a top 10 list. Uh, so we're being really church growthy here, um, really compromising, doing a church, uh, a top 10 list. I, I, bad attempt at humor, I'll keep my day job. But last week we looked at the first five common misconceptions regarding faith. Today we're going to look at the remaining five. So I'll start with number six. Don't be confused by that. Last time we saw that it's a misconception to think that faith is optional. It's also a misconception to think that faith is in faith. It's actually trust in Christ, the historic Christ. We also saw that faith is not equal to faithfulness. It's a misconception to think that faith is faithfulness. We also saw last time it's a misconception to think that faith is not enough to justify if it's faith in Christ. We also saw this misconception that faith is mere assent, mere acceptance. Okay, this morning, number six, misconception regarding faith, and that is that faith is first a virtue, primarily a virtue. That would be a misconception, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can find Ephesians. Some of you are newer to the Bible. And you can look at the table of contents in that Bible we gave you this morning, or you can look it up on your mobile device. But we're going to look at Ephesians this morning for a couple of the points. We're going to look at John for a couple of the points, and that should cover most of them at least. It's a pretty common misconception. People commonly think that faith is first and foremost a virtue. Okay? 
It's something good that you do. It's something that you might even merit God's favor with. It's virtuous. And we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2 that it's, that it's not. Okay? But having said that, you have to remember that the Bible uses the same word sometimes in different ways, in different contexts. So in a sense, in a different context, faith is virtuous. It's the right thing to do. So if you do what God says, that would be good. That would be, you could say, virtuous. Not only that, like in 1 Corinthians the love chapter dealing with 1 Corinthians 13, 12, 13, and 14. Faith is used there describing Christians who are more mature than other Christians and, and they're, they're better at trusting God as Christians. Okay, they're more mature and so they have faith and it's used in, in a sense that would be more virtuous because they're, 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 they've grown more in their Christianity. Having said that, that's not the way it's most commonly used. Firstly, it's not virtuous. In other words, and especially in a salvation kind of context, in a, sal- in, a, in a context of how to be right with God, it's most certainly not virtuous. We need to be clear on that. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, a well-known passage to many of you, not everyone, but many of you, it says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. We're going to see that that's, that's not as in a work or a, a virtuous action. Let's keep reading. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. Can I say, not as a result of virtue. Something that you could be commended for because you're doing the right thing. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. You can read the Bible better if you understand this. You'll be better on your way to understanding Jesus and what he's done and how to receive what he's done. And you'll be a better missionary in being able to communicate the truth about Christ to others if you understand this. Faith is not doing our part as in a virtue because we're doing the right thing. But many times people think of it that way. So we want to be clear on, on, on this matter. I really like the way J.I. Packer put this when he described faith. He said, faith is not a meritorious work, but the stretching out of an empty hand to lay hold of a Savior and with Him a salvation. It's not a perfect illustration. There's nothing there. And we would know in light of earlier things said in Ephesians, even to have the open hand has to be something that God would enable us to do. We trust in Christ. We trust in Him. We rest in Him. Faith, again, this relates to, it's not faithfulness. That would be virtuous. No, we're, we're resting in His work and what He's done. And that's why... We don't get to boast. I love the way the Apostle Paul says it there in verse 9, so that no one may boast. I like to say it's a good, it's a good test. If your perspective on Christianity and how to become a Christian and your perspective on how to be right with God leaves any room for you saying, I did it. My faith is virtuous. It's not Christianity. It's not the gospel. Christ has done all of the work, he is the virtuous one. Isn't that amazing? He's the, he's the virtuous one. He's done all the right things. He fulfilled all righteousness, even to quote him, 
And so there's nothing left to be done. We're resting in Him. We're, we're, we're depending upon Him. We're trusting in Him. But not in a self-virtuous kind of way. That's why He gets all of the praise. As you probably tire of hearing me say, if you, your perspective on heaven is you're going to get there one day and say, we did it! You know that you're off track. You're off target. What happens when we have glimpses of heaven in the book of Revelation is everyone who is there is saying what? Worthy is the Lamb. We're boasting in Christ our righteousness. He is the, to use technical terms, He's the object of our faith. He's the one who brings salvation. Let's pause for a moment. Let me ask you this question. Since all of this started with me wanting to better equip you to be able to proclaim the gospel to people, what if you're talking to someone and they think that or they communicate to you that faith is love. A fair number of people in Omaha, Nebraska, given our religious demographic, whether they know it or not, are supposed to believe that faith is love. And love is faith. This is one of the major reasons why we would have the Protestant Reformation. Because the Protestants are saying, faith is not love. Faith is the empty hand. Faith is trusting in the, the work of Christ. Love is a virtue. Love is the right thing. Love is what you're supposed to do. Love is the law, right? Because Jesus said, he affirms in Luke chapter 10, that, that, that that's the greatest commandment, to love God. Love is virtuous. Love is good. Love is right. But that's not what faith is. I hope what you would do is show them in Scripture that no, then you would have reason to boast. Love is good, but actually that's our problem. That we don't love God, and so we need Jesus in our place in whom we can trust. There's always this tendency to, to combine faith and works. But salvation is of the Lord, and we would say it's all of what Christ has done. For example, we're not going to take the time to go there. We've gone there in our series in Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, God justifies, God declares righteous the ungodly. He doesn't declare righteous those who love God and love neighbor because there would be no one in that line except Jesus. He justifies the ungodly, those who don't love. Let's be careful by God's grace not to, to weasel in somehow our efforts, good things, virtuous things, and redefine faith. Let's move on. Number seven, a seventh misconception regarding faith. And that is that it can remain alone. That faith can remain alone. I like it that we're in Ephesians because we can see it right here. I base my eternal destiny, my, my pastoral ministry, everything that I am, and if I'm going to put it in slogan terms, I believe that, that justification, being right before God, being accepted, accepted by God, is based upon nothing other than grace alone, faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. I like the alone word a lot. 
We say it all the time. Shorthand. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, based upon the authority of Scripture alone, right? But it's a misconception regarding faith if we say that faith stays alone. Faith is nothing we do, and so now we're going to become Christians and do nothing? Ephesians chapter 2 is so helpful because 8 and 9 help us to know that it's all of God, especially if you read the verses beforehand, when we're dead in trespasses and sins, God makes us alive, so it's all His work, it's amazing, and then we're taught and shown that it's, it's only by grace, only through faith, no boasting, that's why we say alone, but let's make sure we read verse 10. Verse 10 is so helpful. For we are His workmanship, His masterpiece, his poema, where we get our word poem. This is what God has done. It's all of Him created. I love it that He uses creation kind of terminology. God creates good things, and even when He, when He created originally, He pronounces everything good. No, very good. So this masterpiece of goodness created, the idea is recreated because of, of salvation in Christ, made new, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. It's not complicated, is it? And yet you know lots of people, you might be one of those people that hasn't seen it. It's all of Christ's work. It comes to us not based upon our virtue, but based upon God's grace. We trust in Christ, it's faith alone, because it's all of His work alone, but it doesn't remain alone. Then we do good works. As a result, fruit, outcome. Ephesians 2.10 is super important. I like to say to people, if Ephesians 2.10 isn't a reality, maybe you need to go back to 8 and 9. Because it's going to happen. It's what God does. And we'll speed things up here a little bit, but, but even the earlier context that I just mentioned, we go from being dead spiritually, made alive. Well, when you're alive, you do lively things. When you're dead, you don't do anything, right? And the idea is you don't do anything right before, but God makes you alive together with Christ. So you're going to act like a person who's alive. We could go to John 15 and see this, that it's all because of our connection to Christ. We could go to Romans chapter 6, which we've done. It's a result of being united with Christ and died with Christ, raised with Christ. So he gets all of the glory, all of the honor. No boasting except in him. This is an important matter and it always comes up. And, and we, we're out of balance one way or the other. Somehow we're going to have our works contribute to our salvation. And we say no, thankfully. And then we go to an opposite extreme error that says basically there doesn't have to be any fruit, no result, no good works. And that's a mistake as well. It's not such a hot topic today, but it used to be a huge hot topic in Omaha, Nebraska. We don't need to go there. <laughs> used to be a, a, a very big deal because of the local Christian college, um, because of a teacher named Zane Hodges who used to come here and speak at 
virtually all of the Bible churches in the area. Um, thankfully, not so much anymore. Salvation is all of grace. Because of Christ, we receive it by faith and only by faith. But it doesn't stay alone. God works in us. The fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's a result. Let's move on. Let's move on to number eight. I almost said verse eight. Number eight, another misconception. And that is, it is within everyone's ability. It is within everyone's ability. That is faith. Faith in Christ for salvation. I'm going to make this one really short because it's so offensive to some. And I'm just a coward that way. Not really. But I, I do need to say it. It will help you in your evangelism knowing this. It's not within everyone's ability to believe in Jesus for salvation. Let's start in light of Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3 by knowing it's not within anyone's ability. Because dead people spiritually don't respond. They don't even believe. Let's start there. Doesn't sound very American, does it? Where everyone has an opportunity. The reality is, we're all dead in trespasses and sins. And Paul is emphatic and, and clear that we're all in that state. If you would turn to John chapter 10. We won't look at Ephesians, but let's go to John 10. We'll look at this for a couple of our points. But it will help us to not be manipulators. If it's within everyone's ability, I'm sure I'm a good enough salesperson to get them to the point of decision where I can close the deal. We don't want that because we don't want our own converts. If we know that we communicate the gospel to people who are spiritually dead, and we know as we started this series from Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It is the means that God uses. We don't need to be manipulators. We preach Christ to everyone. But we do know that God has to work. God has to initiate. And it's not within everyone's grasp. It's according to His sovereign good pleasure. John chapter 10 is harsh, offensive perhaps, but in the right context, it doesn't need to be. John chapter 10, verse 26 is helpful in thinking through this. John 10, 26, Jesus says, but you do not believe, there's our word that we've been looking at, because you are not among my sheep. Who is going to believe? The ones who are going to believe are those who are among his sheep. We don't know who they are until they believe, and then we know they're among his sheep. So we pre preach Christ to everyone. As an aside, we're going to start a study of the gospel of Jesus according to John in the fall. It is going to be spicy. In more ways than one. 
you may be introduced to the Jesus you didn't learn about in Sunday school. And won't that be glorious? So many times we're so busy created, creating God in our image and according to our likeness. It's so awesome that God is gracious enough to tell us who He really is and how things really work. Disturbing, yes. Freeing of idolatry, yes. To know who He really is and how all of this works. Unsettlingly wonderful. Number nine. Another misconception. It may or may not last. Faith may or may not last. I'm kind of wondering if we were sitting having coffee and I said, faith may or may not last, how you would respond. Would you have places in Holy Scripture to show me? Would you be able to help me understand that it will last? Or would you agree with me? After all, we all know people who profess faith in Jesus and now they don't. We've already touched on this, but now we're looking at it in misconception um, categories. Let's look at John chapter 3, or excuse me, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you're the kind of person that underlines in your Bible, this is worth underlining. If you're not that kind of person, we're praying for you. Um, I don't want to cause a weaker brother to stumble, so just don't do it. Okay, verse 39. Here we go. This is what Jesus says about faith in Him, saving faith, lasting faith. And this is the will of Him who sent me. He's talking about His Father. That I should, and He doesn't mean as in it's optional, may or may not. It's I, I will. It's used in that sense. That I should lose, here's what I emboldened and underlined, nothing of all. So the category of the all, I should lose nothing that He, the Father, has given me, but raise it up on the last day. extraordinary, amazing. Of all that He has given me, I will lose nothing, but I will raise it up on the last day. As sure, as sure, as sure, as sure could be. Absolute impossibility for this to be reversed. Let's keep going. How about verse 40? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, notice the breath, that's the all of verse 39, that everyone who looks on the Son, synonymous with believing, but he's actually going to spell it out here, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him, trusts in Him, rests in Him, should have eternal life, and I, oh, the I will statement, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Anything else is, is impossible. The one who looks to Jesus, the one who 
In other words, trust in Him. We'll always be trusting in Him. Jesus won't lose them. But He will. I will raise Him up on the last day. Isn't it great that our confidence is, is, is outside of ourselves? That it is in Him? Sometimes we talk about perseverance, perseverance of the saints. That's good and right, but ultimately in the end it's going to be the, the, the perseverance of the triune God. We're not looking at it here, but the Spirit seals us. Impossible to break. Saving faith, genuine faith, authentic resting in Christ will last. John chapter 10, verse 28, I'll just read it. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We won't go there now, but we have in the past. We have looked at the reality of non-saving faith. We have looked at the reality of a profession of faith that is not genuine. We've looked at 1 John 2.19, which is an important passage for you to know. And you need to have that category in your understanding of Christianity and your understanding of things, or you're going to be super confused. 1 John 2.19 says, Those who went out from us were never really of us. And John isn't talking about church members who went to a different church and now you're mad at. Okay? Although sometimes we'd like to use that passage, right? He's not talking about that. But there, there were those who were with you and trusting in Christ. And, and, and some of those are no longer trusting in Christ. And he's making it clear for us they were never truly of, of us. So you, you, you have to have a category in your mind. I know you want to say to me, once saved, always saved. Awesome. Go for it. John 6, John 10. For starters. I'll give you Romans 8. And raise you 7. I mean, we can just keep going. But you do need to have a category in your understanding because it's a biblical category of those who profess faith in Christ and it's not a genuine faith. That would be the kind of faith that doesn't last. Matthew 13, we looked at that, the different responses to the gospel. It's not that they're losing their salvation. That's impossible. Read John 10, read John 6, read Romans 8. It will last. But once again, in our context, this should be, be gratitude-inducing. This, this, should be, this should cause us to worship the Lord because He is the sustainer. He is the one. It's not, my faith is so strong. No, by God's grace and only according to His sovereign grace, I've trusted in Christ. And since I've trusted in Christ, He won't lose me. As one of my former pastors has said, you couldn't make me doubt my salvation. For effect, but it's rather interesting. Let's wrap things up and look at number 10. A tenth misconception regarding faith in the Christian context is it is divorced from repentance. It is divorced from repentance. I'm going to reference Luke 13, Acts chapter 20, and Acts chapter 26, if you'd like to look at any of those passages. Primarily Acts 20 and Acts 
26. It's a misconception to think that faith is divorced from repentance. Now, be sure of this. Faith is not repentance. They're different. Faith is not repentance and repentance isn't faith. I'm in great company when I say that. I'm also in great company when I say huge problems result when we think that faith is repentance and repentance is faith. Even in our lifetime, we've seen huge theological controversies, at least in many of our lifetimes, because they're the same thing. They're not the same thing. But at the same time, where there is faith, there is repentance. And I say I'm in good company. I say that sometimes not because I want you just to... I don't want to digress and start naming all these people, but sometimes even regarding this topic, people have literally said they're the first ones to ever come up with this. Even about this particular issue. I think if somebody's saying they're the first person ever in Christian history to come up with something, you should already be reaching for the door, right? We're not the first ones to deal with the issue. Debates back and forth, working through the issues. I'm on really safe ground to say, faith is not repentance, repentance isn't faith, but where there is saving faith, there will be repentance. You're saying, well, what is repentance? Would you define it? Yeah, I know, I took teaching 101. I will in just a second. But maybe for effect, listen to Jesus first. Jesus says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus, for the record, says, unless you repent, and he's being very inclusive, you will perish. There needs to be repentance. Repentance is vital. What is repentance? If you look at the basic word for repent, repentance, in the original New Testament language, it means to change your mind. You have to change your mind. You have to change your mind about God. You have to need to change your mind about yourself and your sinful position before God. You have to change your mind about, this is a big one in the New Testament, about who Jesus is. If you thought he was only a prophet, you need to change, you need to repent. If you thought you were good enough to get in because you're a law keeper, you need to repent. You need to come around and listen to John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Your wrong thinking about Jesus and other things related, right, needs to change. You need to come into line and agree with God. You've got to change your mind about Jesus, yourself, God. You have to repent. You can't think that he's Satan and be saved to go to an extreme. It's a change of mind. How about Acts chapter 20? Acts chapter 20, verse 21. This is a fun one too for me to talk about, especially in Omaha, Nebraska, given not that recent history. I know one of you was just talking to me the other day and you were just having a conversation with someone who said, you don't have to repent. That's interesting in light of what Jesus says. It's a misconception to think that faith and repentance are divorced. 
but we have a great mission field to communicate this reality to people. How about Acts chapter 20, verse 21? It's a salvation kind of sermon context. Acts 20, 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God. Notice they're together. They're friends. They're not enemies. And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They're complementing one another. You've got to rest in Christ and trust in Christ. And you also have to have a change of mind regarding related things. You guys doing okay? Am I losing you? I hope I'm not. Stuff is super important for us in understanding how things work. I'll try to use more illustrations next week. More application. That's so silly, isn't it? Talk about applicable. I know all kinds of people who are either confused or totally ignorant about all of these things, and I know you do too. You probably know more people than I do because I'm locked up in an office a lot of the time with only myself. Applicable is when you walk out the door. Hopefully applicable is first in our own hearts. Here's where some of the controversy comes. It comes when people say repentance is a change of behavior. A repentance is where you do the right thing and then God saves you. Let me remind you, repentance means a change of mind. Let me remind you that the Apostle Paul, we're not going there right now, says repentance is granted by God. I've been confused about this issue before. Repentance is not a change of behavior. Repentance is a change of mind. If repentance is a change of behavior and it's a prerequisite for salvation, so much for everything we've talked about in this whole series. Because now I've got to change my behavior, I've got to clean up my life, and then God will save me? I hope I'd get fired for saying that. I hope you all would find a different church. Change of behavior before, to, to make us savable, before God justifies us? No. Then there'd be boasting. I cleaned up my life. I obeyed the commands of Scripture. Repentance means a change of mind. God granted and by the way, if you're going to believe in Jesus, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that He is your righteousness, that He is the one whose work is finished, He is your reconciler, He is your high priest, you can't think He's only a good teacher. You've got to change your mind about that. You can't think you're a good person, or it doesn't even make sense. You've got to change your mind about that. You, you can't think that God helps those who help themselves. You've got to change your mind about that. You need to repent. It's the friend of faith. But here's the thing. I want people to live differently. Right? And so do you. I don't like when people say they're Christians and they don't have any fruit. I don't like when people say they're Christians and they just keep doing whatever they want to do and there's not the good works. And, and, and so I'm so prone to kind of sneaking in, changing behavior, and I'm going to redo the definition of the word and plow some new ground. You don't need to do that. 
Keep your hands off of repentance. Don't hijack the word. Let me show you. Acts 26 verse 20. I get exercised about this because too many times I end up saying the wrong thing trying to get people to behave the right way. There's a much better way to do it that keeps us not denying the gospel of grace. Acts 26, verse 20. We could go to the gospel accounts and see even what John the Baptist said about this, but we're going to see here in Acts 26, verse 20. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Here it is. Here's the change of behavior stuff that you wanted so badly, and so did I. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Ah, there it is. So leave repentance alone, but know that there's a place to call people to act differently to doing deeds that are in keeping with repentance. They complement their repentance. You see? John the Baptist talks about bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But don't redefine what repentance is to try to get a pound of flesh, to get a pound of obedience out of people. Because in the process, you end up denying the gospel of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. You see why I got exercised about it? I can say to people, you need to behave differently. You need to get your act together. You need to bear fruit. You need to have deeds that complement your repentance. And so can you. If you've truly repented about who Jesus is and yourself and God, it would make sense that you would live a different way. I like what one contemporary theologian said about this. In repentance, we confess that God is justified in his verdict against us. And in faith, we receive God's justification. It's helpful. Okay, last thing before the conclusion. Interesting historical note that might help you be a better missionary in Omaha, Nebraska. You ever wondered where penance comes from? Doing penance. You've got to do these things and then God will accept you. And as long as you do enough penance, where we get our word penitentiary, as long as you do enough penance, then God will accept us. Well, it was the Renaissance scholar Erasmus who discovered in the Latin Vulgate they had wrongly, this is a legitimate mistake. I mean, it was a, it was a real mistake. Had erroneously translated the Greek word repent in Acts 2.38, do penance. You see the difference? Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. You've got to change your mind. You've got to think differently. And he's going to call them to believe in Jesus as the Savior, as the substitute, as the last Adam, as the resurrected one. Repent, Acts 2 says. Greek word, really, originally there. Erasmus, blow the dust off. Because the Latin Vulgate wasn't faithful, it said, you do penance. 
You be doing stuff. Put works in repentance. And now all of a sudden, we have an entirely different perspective on how God will accept us. You see? Tragically. Tragically. And you know people and I know people that think God is going to accept them because they're doing virtuous, penitent kind of acts. When really what they need to do is see Jesus for who he is. Repentance, right? And believe in him and rest in him is what needs to happen. All of this started because it is such a privilege for you and for me if we're Christians to be able to be ambassadors for Christ, which all Christians are, and to be able to talk to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your enemies, your family, hopefully those two don't go together, to talk to everyone and tell them about the work of Christ and to call them to faith and repentance. And you don't need to be freaked out about it. What you need to do is remember Romans chapter 10. Faith, saving faith, comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So, my friends, know the gospel, know it some more, know it better, keep knowing it for your own sake, absolutely. And then communicate it to those around you. You don't have to sell anything, you don't have to close the deal. But you should know faith, saving faith, comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, the gospel. That's the way God has set things up. God uses the proclamation of the gospel through people like you and people like me to bring about saving faith. And that's what we're called to do. And it's a delight. It is a joy. It is a privilege. And it's to be for the good of that person you're talking to and the glory of Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you're the God who grants repentance. You're the God who grants faith. There are so many other things that we could be talking about, but thank you for the ground that we've covered. Please use the men and women and boys and girls of Omaha Bible Church to be faithful witnesses, to speak truthfully, to speak winsomely, truthfully, not as those who are better, but even as those who see their sin and misery and are able to communicate good news to others who are experiencing the same. Thank you that you're a God of salvation, you're a God of redemption, a God of reconciliation. Thank you that you're patient with us. May you receive all of the glory and the honor because you and you alone are God. In Jesus' name, amen.